Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And there is a lot on the front page and the succeeding pages of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today. I'm so pleased that Buzz and I have with us today the district attorney for the Northwestern District, who is apt to say, I don't have a lot to say. No comment. Oh, well, so it goes. But we're going to try. We're going to grill the DA as best we can. Uh, Okay, we're not going to really grill the DA, but we do have some questions. There is a guest column in today's Gazette, uh, Dave Sullivan, uh, by six persons who were arrested at the L3 Harris demonstration. And that was on October 12th. And they talk about the charges that were brought and why they are uh, not guilty of them. And I would be interested if you could explain to our listeners who may not know how charges are actually brought, whether your office or any DA's office is actually involved in deciding what charges when they are initially brought. And then we'll uh, talk about what happens in the process from there. But let's talk about how charges are brought, what the charges are, who decides, and why. Uh, Typically, a charge is brought by the police department because if they are uh, observe criminal behavior, then uh, they can bring a complaint before the local district court. And so that's traditionally how it goes. Sometimes... uh, People arrested for crimes based upon information given to the police. They weren't present, and for misdemeanors, it goes to a, a clerk magistrate, uh, what they call a show cause hearing, uh, to determine if a complaint will, will lodge. Major felonies sometimes go directly to uh, the grand jury and for uh, them to be uh, indicted by a grand jury. What's called a direct indictment. Right, direct indictment. Okay. Let's go back to the protesters at L3 Harris. There were police there. And at that point, with the demonstration going on, is there generally, or was there in this instance, uh, any communication with your office about what to do? Uh, in this instance, uh, there, there wouldn't have been. This, this happened uh, with the police that were present. And you know, we would get the charge, as, as stated in the newspaper, um, they were arrested, uh, arraigned in Northampton District Court, and then it would come to our office. So this guest column today says, let me read a couple sentences. The police, Northampton police announced early they would not arrest anyone and would allow us to continue our demonstration. But by early afternoon, L3 Harris management appeared angry at the obstruction that is disruption to the workday and their inability to receive truck deliveries. The state police were called and we soon received warnings to leave. Is it of significance legally that the uh, police, the Northampton police, initially said they would not be arrested? How does that play into this in your judgment, if you can share? Well, I can't speak directly to this because I, I wasn't present there and I haven't really read about it. But um, one thing that um, the police obviously used their discretion not to make an arrest, but then uh, if there's a continuing disruption of uh, business, it's a private property, um, then they would use their discretion. In this case, uh, the state police gave a warning that they would face arrest if they continued to disrupt this private business. So uh, that, that's apparently where, where it went. Let me read you one more sentence or two, and I'm going to ask your comment on it. The next morning, handcuffed and shackled, well, because they uh, elected to stay in jail, as they say, 
to refuse bail and spend the night in our cells in solidarity with all those who lack the privilege that we had to make that decision whether or not to be released. And let's explain that for a minute. Someone is arrested. They are brought to the, in this instance, the jail or the House of Correction, the jail in Northampton or the police department, and they have a right to post bail. Explain how that works. Pre-arraignment. Well, what happens is they're brought to the, um, now it's a regional lockup, they're brought to the- Which is where? Uh, the Hampshire County House of Corrections and Jail. So- uh, Used to be the police department where they would be- st- Yes, staying. but now the, the sheriff kind of helps the local police departments with that custody, that pre-trial custody, so, uh, or pre-arraignment custody. So uh, an individual, um, usually our people are let out uh, on personal recognizance, and so there's a $40 fee- to the clerk. Would, that would go to the clerk. Non-refundable, pay the clerk for the time yeah, the, the clerk spends in for, coming for down and there. releasing you. Exactly. So in this case, they exercise their right not to uh, pay that personal recognizance fee and remain in jail. And uh, that's up to the discretion of the individual whether they want to be released on personal recognizance or not. I assume it, usually it's because that individual for personal recognizance, they don't have a criminal record, they don't have defaults on the record, there's no warrant that's outstanding. So um, I would say 98% of the folks that do get arrested usually are released on personal recognizance. Let me tell you what got my attention, and it did in this guest column as well. I'll read you one more sentence, District Attorney Dave Sullivan. Despite being locked into equipment when it came down to it, none of us resisted our arrest in any way, nor was it clear that we were on L3 Harris's private property based on our understanding. What concerned me about the charges is that they are uh, in – in uh, Springfield lingo, they are they are the three they are the three charges that always go together: uh, disturbing the peace, uh, uh, resisting arrest, and uh, uh, and uh, well, there's one other, but disorderly. Disorderly. Thank you. Um, and and in Springfield, A and B on a cop, but we didn't go there here in this one. At least there's none of that. But resisting arrest is a pretty uh, amorphous kind of charge. And I'm wondering if how that is viewed in your office when you see it. Is there some protocol? Uh, how does it work? Well, for resisting arrest, um, it needs to be pretty blatant, you know, that somebody's punching at the officer or, or that there is some real resistance. It's just not a matter of, you know, giving the police officer a hard time getting into the handcuffs. So, Again, we look at it, um, you know, with a, an open eye that um, if it's a serious infraction, they're waving, they're waving their fists and they're, they're, they're lashing out at a police officer, then that's something that we would consider. When do you do all this? Not you personally, but when does your office, you've just told us that the police select the charges, they go to the clerk as a practical matter, the clerk almost always says, fine, whatever charges you say are substantiated here in this police report, and the clerk signs it. Now there's a charge. The person goes and there will be arraigned. That's already happened in this, these instances. And then there's a pretrial conference. When does your office actually take a serious look at the case and say, here's what, what we really want to achieve, at what we think the outcome should be? Yeah, we'll take a view of the, uh, the police uh, report uh, at arraignment and then start you know, considering what the, uh, what the case is all about. So 
And of course, what we want to do is we want to hear from the police department. We want to hear from the defense if there is one. Um, but the charges have been made, and sometimes in our discretion, we dismiss the charges or we go forward. It just depends on what the facts of the, the, the case are. DA David, David Sullivan, I wanted to ask you, I've heard you before talk about, this is a five-college area. You have encouraged student activism. Actually, you and I had a conversation where you were bemoaning that there wasn't enough student activism against you know real issues in our society. And I'm wondering whether the DA or does or doesn't actually have trainings for police about this. There's a balance here between, you know, real criminal activity and First Amendment protected stuff. And in between, sometimes there's a bleed over, you know, of a trespass or a disorderly conduct while exercising that First Amendment privilege, which you celebrate. Do you have conversations with police departments, like in this case, Northampton Police or the state police, about that line and how to walk it? I know that the, the local police departments go through de-escalation training, and that includes you know protesters and whatnot. Um, but there is that that line, and it may be a little bit blurry. But you know when you're occupying an off office until two a.m., or if you're chained to a particular um, facility and you're blocking you know commerce. Um, then that isn't a protest down the street. You know, people get permits all the time. We know that under the First Amendment. So, you know, those kind of protests, those are protected speech. And so we, we want to make sure that it's protected. And in fact, the police departments protect that speech. They, when there's a protest, many times, you know, that community will provide police protection for those protesters because of traffic and, and other things, or maybe there's a counter-protest. So, you know, it all depends on the circumstances and, and where things are going. So, you know, in, in the cases that Bill alluded to, both L3 and the UMass case, um, we'll use uh, our view of the case and, and see how it conforms to their First Amendment rights. Will your view of the case also take into account the gravity of what they were complaining about? That is... Gaza is a nightmare by anyone's standards, and and um, uh, military involvement is a really serious thing right now. We are threatened with multiple wars right now, and maybe some people are talking about a possible world war, and we have activists and pacifists saying, please, slow down. Is that part of your, what were they complaining about? Is that part of your consideration? Not really. I mean, it's, I, I respect what they're protesting, but if they're you know, occupying an office, we've been asked to leave at 2 a.m., um, should we really consider the merits of it? Um, I mean, I guess a defense attorney might bring in the necessity defense, for example. You know? But from our point of view, I mean, we want to treat everybody equally. Depend it, it doesn't ma make a difference really what the topic is. Uh, it's just that... You know, you, you just have certain limits to your, your right to protest. And, you know, occupying an office until 2 a.m., you know, we'll, we'll take a look at that. Let me ask about how those cases proceeded, because those cases to which you were just uh, referring, uh, D.A. Dave Sullivan, is, are the cases that came out of the uh, occupation of the uh, Whitmore administration building by UMass students, they were, according to the newspaper reports, given a warning to leave. The building closed at 6 o'clock. They didn't leave. They were uh, arrested over the course of the evening, and the last arrest was at 2, 2 a.m. Those cases then go not to Northampton, as happened years ago, but go to the Eastern Hampshire District Court. So tell us about that process. 
Well, they'd be arrested. I mean, we have uh, in Hampshire County, we get divided in two by the Connecticut River. So the, the jurisdiction for Belchertown is everything uh, east of the Connecticut River up to and including where? Belchertown is the Eastern Hampshire District yes, Court? Yes, Eastern Hampshire. And then Northampton ha- handles everything west of the Connecticut River. So um, for those particular charges, they were, were brought at Belchertown, um, the Eastern Hampshire District Court, and then they'll, pr- they'll continue to proceed there. And does your office have, I, I, does it have a consensus or a meeting or some other mechanism by which, for example, the prosecutors who are prosecuting the uh, students from UMass who occupied the building and the L3 Harris's, Harris demonstrators in Northampton, do they get there? Do they talk about it, see if there's some, some consistency or underlying premise or approach that the office has? Well, they'll take a look and see what the the protests uh, protesters did, and you know make that determination. So, um, you know, it's it's now up to uh, us and the uh, defense to figure out what might be a uh, a resolution that uh, meets the the needs of the community. We are speaking with District Attorney Dave Sullivan. We're talking about the protests here at UMass and at L3 Harris. And I think no arrests actually occurred when the Smith students joined the demonstration. We're going to continue that conversation and ask the district attorney about the sentence meted out to Cara Wintala after a conviction for manslaughter, her first, fourth trial, standing char- facing the charges of first-degree murder. We'll be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. Let's experience fitness together. Hi, this is Jessica. And at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us. I know, I know. I always say, why buy it when you can rent it? But maybe you do need to own a tile saw. Maybe a few folding tables out in the garage isn't a bad idea. Come to the auction this Thursday at TJ's Rental. Tools and tents, tables and chairs, china, cotton candy, and popcorn machines. Haven't you always wanted to own a dunk tank? How about a bounce house? Tons of bargains. Huge auction this Thursday at TJ's Rental. Route 9 in Hadley. Preview beginning at 8. 
Hi, my name is Gwen Agna, and I'm running for re-election to the Northampton School Committee for the at-large position. I will continue to advocate for additional funding from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for our Northampton public schools. I will support efforts to diversify the staff, faculty, and administrators. I will promote educationally sound assessments, fair contracts for our employees, and I will listen. Listen to the community of educators, families, and children. Please vote for me on November 7th. Thank you. Paid for by the Committee to Re-Elect Gwen Agna. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. I have one last question for the district attorney for the Northwestern District District Attorney's Office, Dave Sullivan. Uh, and it's an aspect of this that may or not come into play. But there is a way in which the district attorney for minor charges has the discretion, indeed the total discretion, to decide whether or not to convert the charge to a civil infraction. Can you tell us a bit about that? I'm not asking you whether you're doing it because uh, the district attorney, the ADA, who's handling the case or cases isn't here but uh, and wouldn't tell us anyway. But that said, tell us about the process by which a criminal charge can become a civil infraction so that a person doesn't end up with any kind of a record. Yeah, under, uh, under the, the criminal statutes, um, if it is for a misdemeanor, uh, then we have that discretion to change it to a, a civil violation and a fine. So I'm not saying that's going to happen in, in these cases, but it is an option that is available, and uh, we'll consider that down the road. DA, I'd like to ask you about Cara Rintala's case. She was sentenced after her fourth trial to 12 to 14 years in state prison. Your office, after her conviction for manslaughter, again, she was facing this the fourth trial for first-degree murder. She was convicted of the lesser-included charge of manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter. Uh, and you recommended, your office recommended, 15 to 17 years. I would be interested to know, and I think listeners would be interested to know, how does your office arrive at that recommendation? What is the criteria by which you decide this should be 15 to 17 years as opposed to, example, what the court gave 12 to 14 or what the defense requested, which I believe was time served. She's been in for seven and a half. How do you come to the determination of how much jail time, if any, you're going to ask for? Um, well, there's, a, uh, there's one standard, and that is the, um, the sentence and guidelines in superior court that are, that are set uh, by the trial court and by – uh, in this case, the legislature many years ago. Um, so we look at those. We look at the severity of the crime. Uh, she died uh, due to strangulation. Um, and also, has that defendant taken accountability and shown remorse? Which in this case, no, she hasn't. She didn't, she didn't accept any accountability for her crime, for which two juries found beyond the uh, juries found beyond a reasonable doubt that she committed this crime. Okay, just to review, the first case resulted in a hung jury. Second case was a hung jury. The second case resulted in a hung jury. The third case resulted in a conviction for first-degree murder, which the Supreme Judicial Court thrown, threw out, saying that evidence that was introduced by the district attorney's office about paint was clearly inadmissible, highly prejudicial, and therefore the verdict is unreliable, and we're reversing and sending it back for another trial. And after the fourth trial... Akara Rintala was convicted of manslaughter, uh, voluntary manslaughter, uh, and then was sentenced to 12 to 14 years. Yeah. We'll come back to the, I want to come back to the how you arrive at what the recommendation for the sentence is going to be. But I would ask if you care to share or were willing to share, what did you think of the verdict? 
Well, I think it was a just verdict. We actually asked in the third trial and in the fourth trial that manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter, be considered by the jury. Um, we always contended it was a crime of passion. I don't think there was any premeditation or anything like that that was involved in this particular domestic violence incident. However, I think it was important for the jury to have that within their, their power to look at the facts and determine was it manslaughter or was it first degree murder or second degree murder. So all those options were on the table and uh, the jury was very thoughtful, very attentive, and they determined that um, we didn't meet the, uh, the criteria beyond a reasonable doubt for first degree murder, but found it for voluntary manslaughter. And, and I respect the, the decision of the jury. Voluntary manslaughter being an unlawful killing, one, one type of which is in the heat of passion. Exactly. And that's what this jury determined. Having heard that and heard the verdict, your office then has to, as mentioned, decide what recommendation it's going to make to the judge. Yeah. What should the penalty be? How do you decide it should be 12 to 17 rather than 12 to 14? I understand what you said about the criteria and how you want to evaluate a number of factors and happy to hear more about what those factors might be in addition to taking responsibility. But it's a number. It's numbers of years someone's going to put stay in prison. How do you decide that? Well, in, in this case, um, you have a, a jury that's found that person guilty of voluntary manslaughter the maximum in this case was 20 years. We didn't ask for the maximum, which we very well could have. Um, it was the murder of a spouse, and, and um, that's not going to be anything that uh, is ever going to be undone. I mean, that, that person is, is now no longer with us. And obviously, one thing I didn't mention was um, the victim's family. We always want to talk to that victim's family we have throughout the, the years that we've been prosecuting this case. And that's a very strong consideration, that they, that they felt that jail time was merited. Uh, now, the defense asked for uh, just time served, which is about seven and a half years, and we didn't feel that was just by any means. So, um, you know, but again, uh, we look at that discretion. We, we didn't look for the max, but we did look for some substantial amount of time after the verdict uh, for which she has not taken accountability. And by the way, you knew at the time that you came up with the recommendation that those seven and a half years are going to be deducted yes, exactly. from whatever you asked for. Right, exactly. Because she's already served them. It's not. It's yes. se seven and a half years of time already served in prison. I, I would like to ask this. You mentioned the guidelines. How important are the guidelines in state court? It's up to the judge. I mean, th that judge has the discretion. Again, that Superior Court judge, in this case Judge Flannery, um, wants to look at those guidelines, and, um, but also want to use uh, his, his, in, in, uh, his discretion uh, as to what he thinks is fair and just. So I think that the, uh, the sentence that he, that he gave, uh, 12 to 14, I think was fair and just, uh, given the circumstances. The Supreme Court decided that the federal sentencing guidelines were unconstitutional because they intruded on the prerogatives of the judiciary. The state guidelines are, in fact, just guidelines. They, just guidelines. They have no, no... There's no binding uh, uh, effect to it. So as a practical matter, when the sentencing goes, the defendant goes before the judge for sentencing, it's completely discretionary. It's up to the judge. Okay. Uh, I'm going to try one more time on this question. I may or not get any further. But 12 to 14, 
how do you distinguish between uh, you know ten to twelve or uh, eleven to thirteen and or fourteen to sixteen? And when answering that, why am I asking you if you could explain to the <laughs> listeners why am I asking you about two numbers when you just said the maximum is twenty? First question: How do you get to the number? The second question is: Why are there two numbers? Yeah. Uh, you get to the number by factoring in all those um, factors, so to speak. You know, what I said with uh, but accountability, uh, remorse, um, you know, sentence and guidelines, just a, a, a wide variety of things. Crim also cr criminal record. Um, exactly. She had no criminal record in this right. case. So, you know, that was a factor. So there's no magic formula to, if you can get to it. You know, it, this is based upon maybe prior, I don't know if we had taken into consideration any prior crimes that we had asked for sentence. So this was a unique set of facts. So um, and again, it was a domestic violence uh, a crime and um, you know what came up, but again, we give the best figure that we can that's both fair and just and then leave it up to the judge to decide, do they adopt our number or do they go with their own number? But fair and just, you and I could sit here and agree on factor after factor after factor after consideration after consideration and come out with really different numbers at all on what a sentence should be. I mean, I... I, I well, what do you think was a fair sentence? Yeah, well... How about you, Bill? You've looked it, at the facts. Do you, do you think that was a fair and just sentence? I thought that... Listen, I'm not going to argue with Judge Flannery here. Now, that seems to be a zero, a kind of a no-win situation for me. But I do think that after a person has gone to prison, served seven and a half years, been out in the community for a long time, some years now after the trial, to send that person back, I think that is actually a very serious consideration. Does this person really need to go to jail? Does it really need to separate her from her daughter who said, let my mom come home. No, she's separated by her, her deceased mom, too. She's, yeah, I understand. I understand but the I, I think it's scarier when you have somebody that gets found guilty and no longer and doesn't accept accountability. I think that that's the scary part is that she's never acknowledged her crime or uh, that she's willing to take accountability and, and for it. So I think that's scarier that somebody, after all this litigation, is found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and doesn't want to accept her crime. But the, well, let me just chime in with what I think, um, because I think there's like six reasons why you sentence somebody. There's general deterrence, to make an example of that person so other people don't do what that person's alleged to have done, or found guilty to have done. Uh, individual deterrence for that particular person. There's restitution sometimes to make the victim whole or society whole. There's uh, incapacitation, that person we just have to, it's a bad apple, we gotta get it out of the barrel and put it away. Uh, but sometimes well, you have to consider rehabilitation and you also have to consider whether or not revenge is appropriate. I, for one, think revenge is never a good thing for society to do. That's an emotionally based uh, yeah, response. And, and we don't adopt that at all. This I mean, person, it, I think... It's not about revenge at all, I, ever. And I believe you. That your, your consideration, your recommendation that Bill's asking you to come up with a formula for an explanation for, I don't believe revenge is... Part of it for you it might motivate parents of the decedent, but I don't know that. But uh, they never they never had that kind of uh, but this sentiment at all. It was never, nothing about revenge, as you said. Never committed another crime. Had served seven and a half years. There's no restitution possible in this case. 
There's no, you know, I don't think this person has to be individually deterred. I can understand the general deterrence argument that you want to make an example of this person of what happens if you. But kill actually, somebody. it doesn't apply in a voluntary manslaughter case because it's in the heat of passion. It's not. Oh, I'm going to think about killing this person for heat of passion. Uh, and I agree with you. I agree with you. It's, uh, and, and rehabilitation, the person is served seven and a half years. So. Well, rehabilitation I, starts with accepting your crime and what you did. There's no acceptance. So that part of the equation goes out the window because. The first step toward rehabilitation is admitting what you did was wrong and that you want to move on. I mean, has she taken any batterers counseling? I don't think so. We, don't, we haven't heard about that. Has she gone forward with anger management at least? No. So, you know, how is this going to change her in the long run if she just hasn't come to that conclusion that 12 good, honest jurors came to? Dave Sullivan. 30 seconds, why are there two numbers? A sentence of 18 to 20, 12 to 14. Why, why are there two numbers? When There are two numbers because if the person is a good um, inmate resident of that facility or facilities, it gives them the opportunity to be uh, paroled early. In other words, so on a 12 to 14, if she's been a model prisoner, uh, she would be considered at that um, lower number to be uh, you know, paroled. District Attorney Dave Sullivan, really appreciate your time. Good to be here. Always. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Today, a Suffolk County judge could decide whether the Massachusetts Office of Housing and Livable Communities can place a cap on the number of families receiving emergency housing under the state's right to shelter law. Governor Maura Healey recently announced that the state's emergency shelter system is at capacity, and an emergency order filed yesterday is trying to halt a policy that requires the state to provide temporary housing to everyone in need. Massachusetts is the only state in the country with a so-called right to shelter law, which was passed in 1983. Providing emergency shelter to the growing number of families in need is costing the state around $45 million a month, Commonwealth Magazine reported. By the end of the week, the Healy administration estimated that 7,500 families will have sought shelter through the Office of Housing and Livable Communities, which is around twice as many as the program served last year. Many of those people are refugees and asylum seekers from other countries. The nonprofit group Lawyers for Civil Rights has filed a lawsuit on behalf of three families who could potentially face homelessness, if the state policy goes into effect today. They asked the judge for a restraining order that would require the state to continue to provide shelter to everyone who seeks it, despite the threat of a budget deficit if the number of displaced people continues to grow. All 57 UMass Amherst students and faculty members who were arrested last week during a protest against the Israel-Hamas war have been arraigned in Eastern Hampshire District Court. The protesters were charged with trespassing for refusing to leave the Whitmore administration building after hours. They refused to leave until the university agreed to condemn violence against Palestinians by the Israeli government and promised to cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon. The university partners with Raytheon to offer students discounts on online business degrees. And the military contractor was one of the largest employers of U.S. Amherst graduates from the class of 2021. All those who were charged with trespassing have pled not guilty. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. 
It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Get ready for an action-packed homecoming weekend at UMass. Join us for two thrilling games in Amherst starting Friday, November 3rd, as UMass Hockey takes on the Northeastern Huskies. Puck drop is set for 7.30. The weekend fun continues Saturday, November 4th, as Massachusetts football hosts Merrimack. Tailgating on Saturday, November 4th, starts at 11.30 a.m. and kickoff is set for 3.30. Rally up your friends, family, and classmates and return to campus. Get your tickets now by visiting umassathletics.com slash tickets. You were, you are, UMass. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your future. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook School, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods and social studies into the community, working for food justice and applying their own solutions to issues such as climate change or food insecurity. Hartsbrook students connect with students worldwide with the Model UN and participate in exchange, traveling to and hosting students from countries around the world. Hartsburg students cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, there's a Discover Hartsbrook evening this Tuesday. Also this Tuesday, a half-day visiting day for students. Register at Hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This Sunday, November 5th at 2 p.m. at the APA, APE Gallery in Northampton on Main Street, there will be a presentation, a reading, a discussion. The event is titled Lost Soul, Lost War, Found Souls, Poetry of Vietnam Veterans. And we have with us in the studio Doug Anderson and Preston Hood, both of whom are Vietnam vets. Let me start with you, Doug, if I might. Why poems of Vietnam? Why now, all these years later? Well, we're not uh, free of war yet. I mean, war is going on. Um, I think there was a huge literary output from the Vietnam War because it was so long and because veterans really needed to say something. They needed to find out for themselves uh, the complexity and chaos of the war because it was politically difficult to fit them back into society. Now, Doug Anderson, you're a famous poet. You are. And you are famous initially because of your Vietnam, your writings about Vietnam. Does Vietnam still percolate and resonate within you in the way that it did back in the 1970s? It's been a long time. Yes. Um, and um, it's something that never goes away. It's kind of like you grow a new, new memory and a new nervous system in a war because of the intensity of the experience, and it keeps resurfacing. Um, I was talking to Preston earlier that how upsetting what is going on in Israel and Palestine is 
and also in Ukraine because uh, we know what happens on the sharp end of the fighting uh, beyond what the newscasters tell you. Where did you serve in Vietnam? And tell us, tell our listeners about how you served. I served with 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, which at the time was just below the Marble Mountains, and we did operations all the way down into the Khoisan Valley. That was the section of Vietnam called I Corps. And how long were you in now? I was there 13 months. I was in the field with the grunts for nine months, and then I spent uh, four months um, at a hospital company after the battalion pulled out. Let me turn from Doug Anderson to Preston Hood. Tell us about your Vietnam War experience. Um, yeah, going off what Doug just said about the war, it's still in in us, and I think a lot of it has to do with the, you know, the the combat situation, the things you see, the things you do, and for so long, we as Vietnam veterans were silenced. Um, not only will I personally was called a baby killer. Um, when you got home? Yeah. I was not at home just going out in California on, a, on a, an air base, and they were all by the fence, and they were protesting, and they were, you, you're a baby killer. And, you know, it, that impacts you when you hear it. And then you hear it repeated later on. It's just like, you know, when you, and you know, I was a trained Navy SEAL. I served in Vietnam in 1970 in uh, Nam Bay and in um, Dong Tam. And we did a lot of ops, search and destroy, whatever we did. And you learn to stuff that stuff for too long, I think. And then when you go to f start wondering why you're having nightmares and whatever's going on, you have to deal with it. And one of the ways I dealt with it was through my writing. Was it therapeutic? To write? To become well, a poet? Yeah, actually, I had written before I went to Vietnam. Really? But I really got my voice after Vietnam. And for a long time, you just, you know, it's just behind behind your eyes a little bit. And then all of a sudden, the words come out. Sometimes, occasionally, a poem might write itself. And you wonder why, you know. And, um, and then, but I always was able to, for some reason, not only was it about Vietnam and all the, all the tragedy and all the, all the experiences, but it's also other things that were tried to find joy uh, in, my, in my life. The event at APE Gallery this Sunday, November 5th at 2 p.m. is titled Lost War, Found Souls, Poetry of Vietnam Veterans. You both will be reading there, I take it? Okay. Yes. Anyone else? Or will, there, will there be other readers or just the two of you? Just the two of us. Well, let's give our listeners a bit of a preview of Lost War, Found Souls. Doug Anderson, could you read a poem from, from what, what collection of yours are you reading from? The Moon Reflected Fire. This is my first book. Judgment, near Hoi An, 1967. Penned down two hours in a Buddhist graveyard by two barefoot snipers who will not die no matter how many mortars we walk their way. They keep moving, one firing, the other doubling back where the mortars have already been, nor are they silenced by the gunship now squandering rockets at inkblots flickering between trees. These wraiths 
sing with their crack and whine. We will die to hold you here, while the others slip away toward the mountains. What will you die for? Me hunkering behind a pitted tombstone, staring at a skull from a grave churned up by tanks. I was Doug Anderson. Is there a title to the poem other than the first line? Judgment. That's a title. Mm. Let me turn back to uh, Preston Hood. Uh, would you share with us one of your poems? Sure. Um, Beauty is a Cardinal. This poem won the Poet Seat Poetry Award in 2018. I cannot imagine being at war my entire life like Bao Nin. I fought for three quarters of a year a river rat. It seemed long enough. Where in my body do I feel this emotion? Is there a center, a periphery? In my belfry sleepless dark bats can't gnaw shame out of me. But a cardinal peck, peck, pecking at the window. Footsteps sneaking up make me jumpy. Where is my awareness, my breath? What, what is the title of that poem? That was Beauty is a Cardinal. I and just want to point out that Preston Hood just, uh, he didn't read that. He recited it. It was pretty mm -hmm. powerful. It's, is it in a collection of yours? Um, it's going to be in my new collection. Okay, great. Yeah. When, which is coming out when? I don't know. Probably sometime in another year. I'm trying to put it together now as okay. we speak. Thank you. Lost War, Found Souls, Poetry of Vietnam Veterans. Again, will be at the APE Gallery this Sunday, November 5th at 2 p.m. APE, of course, on Main Street here. I have the same question for both of you. And if you don't want to answer it, fine. What is your most vivid memory of serving in Vietnam? Mine was um, a massacre, basically. It's the first time we had actually surprised the PAVN. And uh, it was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It was just the, the mangling and, and murder of um, 39 people. I've never seen 39 people killed um, in my life. Let me turn from Doug Anderson back to Preston Hood. I have the same question, if you'd be willing to share. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're trained to be um, killers, really. And you have to stuff it. And you, know, you shouldn't be afraid of anything. But I think uh, one of the scariest times, we went back into an area we weren't supposed to go into, and we were surrounded by the NVA and Viet Cong. And um, we first didn't have air support, and it was pretty, you know, bodies are flying in the air. Um, we didn't, luckily didn't have anybody killed, but I can remember carrying a point man, because I was like an assistant corpsman sometimes, depending on which platoon I was with, I mean squad. And so um, that was pretty harrowing, you know, carrying this guy who, who got hurt, and, you know, like, a bullet goes this way, you don't think about it. You go back, you do what you got to do, but 
it, funny thing with me was is, and I didn't think a lot of veterans is, you don't when you come back home is when the nightmares start. They don't start, you know, when you're there. Usually, for me anyway. Do you still dream about Vietnam? Not as much, but I still have every so often. I'll have a disruptive, uh, you know, flashback or something. Not often, in, in, you know, for seconds I might be in, but. Used to be worse before, but I've done a lot of therapy to try to help that out, and so my writing is therapeutic as well. I think uh, Doug's is is too. You know, it, you have to put the. Exp Let me ask Doug An Doug Anderson the same question: Do you still have? Do you still dream of Vietnam? Very seldom, but it's curious. They aren't horrible dreams. Uh, I've been back twice since the war. And made, Back to Vietnam. Yes, and made friends with some of my former enemy and uh, who took me into their homes, introduced me to their families and fed me and treated me like uh, a fellow soul. And when I think of Vietnam now, I think about those trips back. I want to go back again. It's a beautiful country and a beautiful people. But I don't have the trauma dreams anymore. We are speaking with Doug Anderson and Preston Hood. They will be reading and discussing, having a Q&A on a, on a presentation titled, in a presentation titled, Lost War, Bound Souls, Poetry of Vietnam Veterans. Again, this Sunday, 2 o'clock at the APE Gallery. We'll be back more with Doug Anderson and Preston Hood right after this. Why don't you come on back to the war? It's just beginning. Well, I live here with a woman and a child. The situation. Or talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. This is Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner reminding you to vote November 7. Greenfield needs a qualified, committed person at the helm of this more than $60 million operation that we know of as the city of Greenfield. I am proud to be endorsed by Governor Maura Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, but the endorsement that I really need is yours. Your vote on November 7 means a lot to me. Let's move forward together. Paid for by Committee to Elect Roxanne Wiedegartner. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready-to-go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground-up flour and grains, stone-milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. 
That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with two distinguished award-winning poets, Preston Hood, who served in Vietnam with the SEAL Team 2, and Doug Anderson, who is well-known, I think, to the audience here today. Buzz, you had a question. I did for these two distinguished Vietnam veterans. I am uh, the gorilla in the room right now is that uh, there are two wars going on. And we hear about um, all the efforts to keep it from becoming a widening war mm-hmm. um, and the devastation which we're watching in our living rooms on our TVs, the human cost of it is a nightmare for those of us mm-hmm. who are watching. I wonder, I don't know which of you to throw this to, I'll throw it to you because you're next to me, Preston Hood, first. Um, what is it like for someone who's gone through what you've gone through to see what's going on both in Ukraine, in Israel, and Gaza? Well, it's, um, first of all, it, it hits me in a lot of ways. It hits me politically. It hits me as a human being, but it also as a warrior. And going through some of the explosions in different situations like that, it's, it's pretty awful. And, you know, I guess I can't understand why more isn't being done with regards to the Palestinians, and it's a big situation, and and yet what it's bringing out is bringing out the worst from both sides. Israel wants to go back for revenge, even though, you know, they were attacked in something brutal, and then the other Hamas wants to do away with Israel, so how do you solve that? It brings a lot of doubt into my mind, and it's... It's affecting the whole country right now. People are, you know, protesting on both sides, either both in Israel and in, and in, um, you know, for Palestinians and in Israel and in America. Doug Anderson, as a veteran, how does it? What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's really upsetting. You know, it's because uh, my five senses come awake when I hear a newscast. Uh, I'm very happy that they're actually mentioning civilian casualties. Uh, They used to not do that. Um, It's a horrible situation. Um, I remember after the 60s, I thought that we had, naively, I thought that uh, we had reached a plateau where this wasn't going to happen anymore. Uh, Silly me. And uh, we have perpetual war. And there is no war that does not kill civilians. Doug Anderson, um, can we get one more poem in from you? Shen Loi, which means I'm sorry in Vietnamese. The man and woman, Vietnamese, come up the hill, carry something slung between them on a bamboo mat, unroll it at my feet. The child, iron, gray, long dead. Flies have made him home. His wounds are from artillery shrapnel. The man and the woman look as if they are cast from the same iron as their dead son. So rooted are they in the mud. 
There is nothing to say, nothing in my medical bag, nothing in my mind. A monsoon cloud hangs above, its belly torn open on a mountain. Preston Hood, could we hear one more from yes. you? Uh, Glinda Hope, after suicide, elegy for Arik, my son, 1979 to 2001. I tried a glimpse, clear air of mountains, a red-tailed hawk's dark on white streaks of day, in each of my muttering separate desperate hands, but my slow slip dark heart drops to a blackness I haven't felt in a while when I think of my son Arik in the old way. I want to hold him like a bud bloom memory long enough for my breath to calm as my grandfather held me after I cut myself with a knife. Out in storms threaten, beyond a pastel wind soothes my eyes. I sweep molecules of DNA from hurt. There is so much more to grasp. Now I glide to clouds and sky, blood blend. Preston Hood and the third and Doug Anderson will be appearing this Sunday, November 5th, 2 o'clock at the APE Gallery, 126 Main Street here in Northampton. The title is Lost War, Found Souls, Poetry of Vietnam Veterans. I want to thank you both for sharing. I thank think so it's much. really hard to do it. I am so honored that you could be with us, and I know our communities is enriched for what you are giving to us this Sunday. Thank you both, Doug Anderson and Preston Hood. Thank you. Thank you. For only love can comprehend You know we've got to find our way Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Are you an educator? Want to be more confident teaching about environmental issues? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst offers hundreds of curriculum units, lesson plans, classroom activities, and professional development workshops for K-12 teachers. Come check us out. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit HitchcockCenter.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI charged with trespassing have pled not guilty. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we have with us today um, just somebody that I have a profound respect for, uh, a person who embodies the best of what the Fourth Estate is all about, uh, investigative reporter Dusty Christensen, who is a freelance reporter, but always manages to get his fingers in some pretty important pies in this region. Dusty, hello. To be on today. Well, it is always a pleasure to have you on. So, uh, Dusty, you have um, been working, I know a couple of weeks ago, you read, wrote a story about uh, an ongoing 
uh, inquiry um, that arose out of a operating under the influence stop um, in which uh, Judge Ogolowitz actually uh, granted a motion to suppress. Could you tell us about that story and what you've learned? I sure can. You know, it was a chilly January morning when two uh, Northampton police officers pulled over a driver at about 5 a.m. for a busted taillight and then shortly after arrested him for drunk driving um, on an OUI charge, I should say. In their arrest report, the officers alleged that the car smelled like alcohol, that the driver had glassy eyes, slurred his words, fumbled his belongings before failing a number of field sobriety tests. Um, But when Judge Ogolowitz watched dash cam video of the incident, uh, she found that the evidence told a different story. Uh, She heard no slurring of words. uh, She heard uh, no mention of glassy eyes. And the rookie officer who initially made the stop told his training officer back in the cruiser that the driver, quote, didn't have any smell. Um, And that is not all that the judge heard on that dash cam audio. Uh, She also heard the training officer, Heather Longley, uh, tell her trainee, quote, if it's an OUI, we're going to cheat. I need to get out of here by 8.30. Uh, That comment drew a uh, pretty spicy uh, opinion from uh, the judge uh, when she ultimately decided to allow this defendant to suppress any evidence from the traffic stop whatsoever. I just want to stop you, Dusty. I just want to amplify those words, your quote, we're going to cheat. If it's an OUI, we're going to cheat. Those are the words. Those were the exact words that this judge heard on dash cam audio. And uh, and uh, I should also note that in cross-examination, uh, the judge noted that Officer Longley said uh, when asked um, uh, when asked about cheating, she said cheating, quote, is OK, depending on context, end quote. Uh, that drew a pretty uh, spicy rebuke from uh, the judge when ultimately deciding that no evidence could be used from this traffic stop. Um, she went on to, to say that Officer Longley's quote, adoption of cheating and honesty as a malleable factor in the course of police work cast doubt on her credibility, uh, end quote. Uh, I should go on to say that, uh, that the Northampton Police Department is now investigating this internally uh, and the Northwestern District Attorney's Office says they're looking into her comments about cheating and whether or not they may have impacts on other cases in which Heather Longley uh, is testifying uh, in, in, in a criminal, in a criminal uh, case. So in, in the course of your investigation, Dusty Christensen, uh, it, it seems to me that when the judge allowed this suppression um, motion and said that that evidence is inadmissible, the judge was implicitly saying, well, if you have an acknowledgement that you could cheat, how can I determine whether or not what you say was a grounds for your stop or grounds for your determination that the person was operating under the influence is accurate when in fact you just admitted there on camera that you cheat? Is that is that what your investigation disclosed? That's right. And only, not only that, but in cross-examination saying that cheating is okay, depending on context. Uh, you know, the judge said that uh, obviously, uh, espousing cheating in any regard is anathema to the fair and impartial administration of the law. Uh, those were the judge's exact words. Um, so that cheating comment was uh, it played a really big part in this case being uh, ultimately uh, dropped by the DA's office after that motion to suppress was allowed, um, and now is resulting in uh, an investigation into those comments and what 
impacts they may have on other cases. And I should know there are probably a fair number of other instances in which this officer, uh, Heather Longley, has stopped other drivers for uh, operating under the influence charges. Um, in 2020, the Massachusetts chapter of the organization Mothers Against Drunk Driving gave Longley a war an award. Uh, saying that she was one of two officers in the, the department who, quote, go above and beyond to take impaired drivers off the road, end quote. Um, the Northampton Police Department's website also lists Longley as one of the department's two drug recognition experts who take a two-week training course and then work to identify drivers who are under the influence of drugs. Uh, it's important to note that uh, that uh, a lot of people have cast doubt on those uh, so-called experts and their and their uh, methods. Uh, last year, there was a Massachusetts General Hospital study uh, of marijuana impairment while driving, and those researchers found that these drug recognitions experts uh, or so-called experts produced a staggeringly high number of false positives and that led those researchers to drop the drug recognition expert protocol entirely from their experiment. So I imagine that there are other cases that could be under scrutiny now that these uh, comments have come out uh, in the courts and now uh, in the in the press uh, when we at the shoestring broke the story. I'd be interested to know, Dusty, more about the possibility of more cases being affected. I mean, every case where this officer testified in terms of newly discovered evidence, this officer saying, I cheat when I think it's good. I lie when it's okay for the case and serves the better public good, according to me. Isn't that a, going to open a large number of cases for review and scrutiny and perhaps motions for a new trial? Not to mention this, whether or not the DA could ever bring this, put this cop on the stand again. What are your thoughts about all that? I think you're right. I mean, obviously, you you both as lawyers uh, have have uh, as much uh, way more insight into this uh, than I do. But uh, it does seem that this would open a pretty big can of worms in tor in terms of uh, Officer Longley's past cases and obviously her ability to testify in front of a judge moving forward, which is a um, critical part of being a police officer. Um, you know, that's why these so-called Brady disclosures are so important. Those are the the disclosures that prosecutors have to make to defendants of any potentially exculpatory evidence that exists. And uh, police officers saying uh, on camera that uh, we're going to cheat and then saying in cross-examination that cheating is OK, depending on context. Um, may very well cast doubt on on any future testimony that uh, that she gives. Um, you know, I did ask the Northwestern District Attorney's Office if they have drafted or sent out any of those disclosures related to this incident. And a spokesperson told me that the office is still in the process of assessing the impact of the judge's decision. So obviously, we at the Shoestring will continue to keep our eyes on that and to uh, and to keep our eyes on the internal investigation playing out at the Northampton Police Department as well. Dusty, this is the second incident, second involving police here locally, where dash cams have caught the police involved in illegalities. I'm wondering if this has affected or if you would care to share your perspective with regard to the utility of dash cams, which I have defended as being really important. It is surveillance, but it's surveillance of the police. Also, whoever else is there, of course. But it's mostly to protect people and to surveil the police as opposed to surveillance by the police. Different. Do you have some thoughts about whether these cases prove the validity and importance of dash cams or whether the criticisms of them uh, remain? 
That is such a good question, Bill. And I'm I'm going to give the classic reporter answer that it's kind of uh, it's probably a little bit of both. I assume, uh, you know, obviously there are folks uh, who have raised civil liberties concerns around extra cameras being put on police uh, vehicles and or on police officers if we're talking about body cams and uh, you know sort of disproportionately surveilling uh, communities of color or other places where police officers are are heavily uh, posted. Um, but you know, obviously, as a reporter, I am always looking for evidence of things uh, that we can bring to the public's attention that are really important. And this case is certainly one of those. We would have not had this uh, evidence come out were there not dash cams. Um, so uh, previously, this uh, this comment may have never made it to the public record. And uh, right, as you're mentioning, at the shoestring, we also broke a story earlier this year of uh, police officers uh, violently pulling a woman, uh, Marisol Drioch, out of her car uh, after she was pulled over for a busted light as well. So, um, so you know, as a reporter, I'm always looking for uh, those kinds of, of public records that can help us tell more powerful stories. And two of the most powerful ones I've told this year relied on dash cam uh, footage. It is really interesting. Uh, Dusty Christensen, in your article, we're going to cheat, in quotes, uh, Northampton police accused of, quote, open admission of malfeasance. Uh, and you talk about the importance of the dash cam and the uh, fact that you uh, know that this video exists. What do you as an investigative reporter do in order to try to get your hands on the video? Well, uh, public records requests are a journalist's best friend, although we do have a very weak public records law here in our state. Um, so filing public records requests for that video for the internal investigation that Northampton police have done, we're curious to know whether they've identified any other similar incidents from, from either of, of these officers. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously uh, continuing to make those requests from the Northwestern District Attorney's Office for any Brady disclosures uh, that they uh, have drafted to defendants. I know the way that office keeps track of, the, of those things as they draft um, sort of form letters about particular incidents that they can just stick the uh, attorney and defendant's name on and send to if, uh, if an officer is involved in their case and there's any evidence of, of, of possible misconduct on behalf of that uh, officer. Um, so uh, just continuing to ask questions and filing public records requests is the, is the best way for us to stay on top of a story like this as reporters. And uh, we promise to do so because it's an important one and uh, and folks ought to know about um, this kind of uh, uh, alleged misconduct, uh, you know, playing out uh, and how it might impact uh, the justice system. It's the justice system and, of course, the police conduct that we're focusing on right now. But there's another part of this story that I don't want to leave uh, unnoticed, which is the impact on the defendant. Um, what was the impact on this defendant when an officer who openly admits, uh, not openly, to his trainee, to her trainee, that uh, cheating is part of the process of uh, OUI uh, policing, um, it says we cheat. So what was the impact on this particular defendant? It, it was it was significant. Um, we spoke uh, with the defendant's uh, attorney, Jesse Adams, uh, who, as you both know, uh, was, was previously a city councilor here uh, in Northampton as well. Um, and, uh, you know, he told us that the arrest had a really negative impact on his client's life, resulted in hardship and lost opportunities as it dragged on for more than six 
months. Um, it, you know, he had to go through the, the court process to try to fight against uh, this case uh, where uh, this thing happened and obviously had a good defense attorney in, in Jesse Adams. Um, but, uh, you know, th this uh, this story could have gone a different way if somebody uh, just uh, thought that, you know, maybe the uh, uh, it wasn't worth fighting or they didn't have time to, to show up and fight a, a, a charge like that. Um, so uh, it's my understanding that this had a pretty big impact on on this defendant's life until, of course, the, the DA's office eventually dropped that case uh, in, the, in the summer. Just to clarify, Dusty, the DA dropped the case, as I understand it, because the judge allowed the defendant's motion to suppress. And what the judge suppressed was all the evidence of the stop. So the DA had, how to put this, no evidence whatsoever that could be introduced at a trial. That's what really came down here, right? That's correct. Yes. Uh, ultimately, uh, the the DA standing, uh, the DA's office, uh, the prosecutors there standing with no evidence in their hands, uh, decided to what's called null pros, as I'm sure, or as I know you both know, um, uh, to null uh, to null pros or, or drop the case um, against this defendant who they all of a sudden had no evidence against because all of it uh, was allowed to be thrown out because of these cheating comments. And in your story, Dusty Christensen, you quote her from her decision where she says, quote, moreover, Officer Longley's adoption of cheating and honesty as a malleable factor in the course of police work cast doubt on her credibility in the de determination of the facts by this court. We are speaking with Dusty Christensen. When we come back, I want to talk about a little bit more about policing with respect to his work, his observations, his reporting about Holyoke Police. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Every child has a spark that's waiting to be ignited, that deserves to be ignited. At the Bement School, we know each student's story. We know them as individuals. Kids at Bement understand that academic success is an important part of who they are. Not the only part, but an important part. Their teachers guide them on that quest, individually and as a group, fostering a sense of responsibility for learning. The Bement School serves students in kindergarten through ninth grade. It's a close-knit community of students from Western Mass, from other parts of the country, and other parts of the world. Forming bonds with students whose households and cultures are different gives them a broad perspective on the world, even at this young age. As much as academic success is important at Bement, so too is how students learn to live Bement's core values, compassion, integrity, resilience, and respect at school and in their communities. Take a closer look at Bement. Contact me, Kim Lachlan, Director of Admission, or visit our website, bement.org. Hello, I'm Kim Gerald, and I'm here to ask you to vote for Gwen Agna on Tuesday, November 7th. 
Gwen is running for re-election as an at-large representative on the Northampton School Committee. As a teacher at Jackson Street School, I witnessed Gwen's efforts to build a school culture of caring, learning, and social justice. She is a leader who listens carefully to the whole community. Please vote for Gwen on November 7th. Paid for by the Committee to Re-elect Gwen Agna. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with seemingly tireless investigative reporter Dusty Christensen. Dusty, you've been working on uh, things involving the Holyoke police. Please. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, as somebody who spent a, a number of years covering Holyoke for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, uh, I, I've done a lot of reporting on the Holyoke Police Department. Um, particularly around the issue of the department's internal investigations into alleged misconduct uh, by officers. And um, so as such, you know, now that I'm a freelancer, I continue to report on Holyoke and and the police department. And uh, just this week, we were able to to uh, to publish a a scoop about a police captain there, Manuel Reyes, who resigned shortly before an outside investigation had concluded that he sexually harassed subordinates and violated other city and departmental policies. Uh, we had originally broken the story that uh, that Reyes was put on paid leave in March. That was when a Holyoke District Court judge approved a harassment prevention order against him based on testimony from a junior officer in that department. Um, you know, the court record said that he had uh, allegedly groped and kissed uh, an employee, a subordinate, without her consent and made repeated unwanted sexual advances to her. Uh, the city uh, hired a consulting firm to investigate those claims, and uh, I was able to get my hands on a copy before anybody else. and. Um, and uh, that consulting firm concluded that he had violated city and departmental rules against sexual harassment. And then he also unlawfully looked up the criminal background of his estranged wife's ex-boyfriend. Um, the, uh, the, the interesting thing to note about this case is that um, despite those findings of some pretty serious uh, violations of, of, of both policy and law, Reyes, uh, the city never moved to fire Reyes. Uh, Instead, he said he was able to retire shortly before that investigation was finalized. And what that means is that at 48, he'll be able to retire with his pension. uh, And he was also paid out for all of the unused paid time off he had accumulated over some 25 years almost working in the department. Uh, that payment uh, that the city had to pay out for to him for all that unused PTO was over one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. So uh, this is a, a fascinating case about uh, about police accountability or perhaps a lack thereof. Um, uh, and uh, and it's a story that we've been on for for uh, a, 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 a quite a while. Um, I have actually, as a reporter, dealt with uh, Captain Reyes quite a bit um, because he was for around a decade the internal affairs officer at the Holyoke Police Department, meaning he was in charge of investigating misconduct within the department. Um, I published earlier this year a very lengthy investigation with New England Public Media. Uh, We got our hands on all civilian complaints that had been filed against the Holyoke Police over a 10-year period. Um, Those uh, in large part were investigations that, uh, that Reyes led. And out of the 92 times that an officer was named in one of those civilian complaints over that 10 years, 
only three officers ever faced discipline and it was verbal warnings in two cases and additional training in the third um so this is a very interesting story about i just, I just want to point out also in those 92 cases uh for the most part uh the, the complainants never heard from the police they never heard from the administration nobody ever responded to their allegations that the police had abused the power invested in them yes and they're um you know, the the police department was also uh, recently criticized by a, a, another consulting firm uh, that came in to audit its practices um, uh, for some of the policies in its internal affairs department. Um, you know, people when coming in were unable to make anonymous complaints. They had to come into the department and sign a complaint form. And uh, that is definitely not considered best practice. Uh, in fact, it's considered a way to deter people from coming in to make complaints against the police. You have to go into their headquarters and sign your name to the thing in front of a police officer. Um, uh, it's my understanding that the, the police department is, you know, beginning to change its, uh, its uh, policies. Obviously they hired an outside investigator for this uh, particular uh, case. Um, uh, but yes, uh, this is a this is a, an issue that's it's worth a lot of scrutiny, not just in Holyoke, but in, in police departments across our region. Dusty, on our show, Mayor Joshua Garcia a number of times pointed to the audit that was being done, that was being conducted, and that as a result of that, depending on what the re results were, what the conclusions are or were, uh, changes would or would not be made in the Holyoke Police Department. Has the audit affected the Holyoke Police are there changes being made? Is is the audit public now? The audit is public. It was released earlier this year, and and uh, you know, as as part of it, there were a, a whole series of recommendations. Some of which were more short term. Some of which uh, were were far longer term fixes that this consulting firm uh, proposed to the city and to the department. You know that that audit of policies found that. Um, that the police department posed a quote substantial risk uh, to the city uh, in terms of liability. Uh, it found that the department was not following its own policies, which in some cases were were outdated anyways, um, and that uh, there were a number of best practices that were missing. There was no field training program for uh, new hires within the department. Um, a whole host of things. So I do know that the, the city has said that the, it, there's been some fixes already, particularly around uh, the field training of officers, for example, uh, perhaps how internal investigations are done. Um, some of those uh, other fixes that that, uh, that audit suggested are more long-term things like um, uh, pursuing as a department accreditation, which is something that other nearby departments like Northampton have done um, uh, to get accredited by an outside agency um, in order to make sure that you're following, you have best practices and policies in place and that you're you're following those policies. Um, so, uh, you know, it remains to be seen. I know some people had criticisms of that uh, audit because it was not truly an audit in, in the financial sense. Um, and the part of the reason this audit came forward were was uh, reporting that I had done at the Daily Hampshire Gazette, looking into the very high number of overtime hours and overtime pay in the department. So that's still something we don't have a ton of answers about um, because of uh, of that audit, just focusing on policies. But um, but uh, it certainly has had uh, some effects in the department. I know. Dusty Christensen, I want to change our attention a little bit. But when you speak of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, you are no longer a reporter on the payroll at the Daily Hampshire Gazette. You are a freelance reporter, and a lot of the work that you do is for the shoestring. 
Uh, could you tell listeners who may not know what is the shoestring and uh, what's going on at the shoestring these days? It's a lot of exciting stuff going on at the shoestring nowadays, uh, which is a, a, a small uh, a local news outlet that's been around for, for a handful of years. But uh, in this last year, uh, it's really started ramping up the, uh, the really serious investigative reporting uh, that it does, um, hiring freelancers from across our area to write out about really important topics. You just heard about two of them here on the, the air today, but there are many others. Um, uh, we were able to co-publish uh, our most recent investigation with New England Public Media. Earlier this year, we, we partnered with The Nation magazine on a big investigation into working conditions in local cannabis grow facilities uh, here, but also nationwide. Um, it's, uh, it is, uh, everything I could dream of as an investigative reporter, a place that gives me the time and, uh, and, and financial support to be able to dig into stories like this. And, uh, starting today through the end of December, we are taking part as an organization, what's called Newsmatch, which is a powerful collaborative fundraising movement that supports independent journalism. Uh, so I would strongly urge anybody, if you read the shoestring, if you've heard of us, if you haven't heard of us, go to our website, check out our amazing journalism. If you have read our stuff, uh, now is the time to donate if you want to do so. Uh, news does not pay for itself. Uh, it takes uh, a time and effort and, and finances in order to, to fairly compensate people to do this vital work for our community. Um, through December 31st, uh, Newsmatch will, will match your new monthly donations up to 12 times or double your one-time donation up to $1,000. Uh, that is really huge for us as a, as a small organization that, as the name suggests, operates on a shoestring budget. Um, <laughs> uh, but we're hoping that that budget uh, doesn't have to be so shoestring so we can bring uh, readers in the Valley uh, the super important investigations that we know they care about. Uh, this is the kind of work we've been doing uh, for a while now and are hoping to make it even stronger in the new year. So donate to the shoestring now, folks. And how do we do that again? Uh, it's it's very simple. You can uh, you can just go to the uh, the shoestrings uh, website. That is theshoestring.org. Again, theshoestring.org. Uh, right in the top right corner, there is a donate button, and that will take you uh, to uh, a page where you can find our link to our fundraiser page. That's the uh, the uh, service that we use to fundraise for the website. Um, go on there. All all online donations are tax deductible, thanks to our fiscal sponsor. Uh, and uh, we're really excited to do even more important stories like uh, the ones we talked about today in the coming year. Dusty, before you run, I'd like your reaction to what Mayor Joshua Garcia of Holyoke announced yesterday. I'll read you two sentences. The mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, has released a public safety plan in response to the shooting of a pregnant woman on a public transit bus that resulted in the death of her baby. This from WAMC. Nicknamed uh, Ezekiel's plan in memory of her unborn child, Mayor Joshua Garcia proposes hiring 13 additional police officers, adding foot and bike patrols, installing, installing a citywide surveillance camera system, but or and also increasing rental housing inspections and addressing other quality of life complaints. What do you think about that as the reaction to this tragedy? Yeah, you know, this is uh, following the city's um I, I believe the city and the police department, uh, together with other local law enforcement agencies, had a big uh, show of force in Holyoke uh, recently, making a bunch of arrests in the city uh, uh, to send a message, I suppose, uh, that um, 
that they're going to be cracking down on 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 crime. Uh, this, as you mentioned, does come after a pregnant woman was struck by a stray bullet uh, while riding a bus, and that that ultimately, uh, I believe, killed her her child. Um, and uh, so, you know, this is a plan that involves a really heavy police presence and uh, strengthening surveillance in the city. And so. Uh, you know, I, I do know that there are some folks in Holyoke who want to see the police officers more in their neighborhoods, but there are plenty of people who also uh, do not want to be over-policed and, and feel like uh, a heavy-handed approach like this is not the answer. Um, I've heard some anecdotes of people uh, feeling like they got unfairly swept up in this last um, uh, a series of arrests that the, the Holyoke Police Department and, and other departments made uh, as a show of force after after this shooting. So um, uh, I'm, it, I'm eager to see how this plays out and what the reaction of folks in the, the city council and in uh, the, the city uh, is to, to this announcement. So uh, once again, folks can support work, the incredible work of Dusty Christensen and the investigative work, which we all need, we rely on. We need the truth in those people that are policing our streets and doing our governance. So uh, please go to the shoestring, look at look for that donate button, and twelve times the match can't beat that. Dusty Christensen, thank you for joining us again today. Thanks so much for having me. We will be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Today, a Suffolk County judge could decide whether the Massachusetts Office of Housing and Livable Communities can place a cap on the number of families receiving emergency housing under the state's right to shelter law. Governor Maura Healey recently announced that the state's emergency shelter system is at capacity, and an emergency order filed yesterday is trying to halt a policy that requires a state to provide temporary housing to everyone in need. Massachusetts is the only state in the country with a so-called right-to-shelter law, which was passed in 1983. Providing emergency shelter to the growing number of families in need is costing the state around $45 million a month, Commonwealth Magazine reported. By the end of the week, the Healy administration estimated that 7,500 families will have sought shelter through the Office of Housing and Livable Communities, which is around twice as many as the program served last year. Many of those people are refugees and asylum seekers from other countries. The nonprofit group Lawyers for Civil Rights has filed a lawsuit on behalf of three families who could potentially face homelessness if the state policy goes into effect today. They asked the judge for a restraining order that would require the state to continue to provide shelter to everyone who seeks it despite the threat of a budget deficit if the number of displaced people continues to grow. All 57 UMass Amherst students and faculty members who were arrested last week during a protest against the Israel-Hamas war have been arraigned in Eastern Hampshire District Court. The protesters were charged with trespassing for refusing to leave the Whitmore administration building after hours. They refused to leave until the university agreed to condemn violence against Palestinians by the Israeli government and promised to cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon. The university partners with Raytheon to offer students discounts on online business degrees. And the military contractor was one of the largest employers of U.S. Amherst graduates from the class of 2021. All those who were charged with trespassing have pled not guilty. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program.
occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. I know, I know. I always say, why buy it when you can rent it? But maybe you do need to own a tile saw. Maybe a few folding tables out in the garage isn't a bad idea. Come to the auction this Thursday at TJ's Rental. Tools and tents, tables and chairs, china, cotton candy, and popcorn machines. Haven't you always wanted to own a dunk tank? How about a bounce house? Tons of bargains. Huge auction this Thursday at TJ's Rental. Route 9 in Hadley. Preview beginning at 8. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community. And that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And welcome back to the show. Um, we are, we're heavy on reporters these days. We're really lucky because here in the studio is Sarah Robertson. Uh, Sarah, you've been covering the... Um, the housing hearings. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yesterday, there was actually a hearing in Suffolk County Superior Court about um, because the Lawyers for Civil Rights, which is a um, group that <laughs> they filed a lawsuit against the State Office of Housing in Livable Communities, um, arguing that that state agency cannot pause this program that provides emergency shelter to all families in need. Um, Massachusetts is one of the only states in the, it is the only state in the country that has a law um, requiring anyone who needs it, um, <laughs> requiring any, anyone who needs shelter can be provided um, temporary emergency shelter through the state. Regardless of their immigration status or anything else? Yes, regardless. And um, that program, according to the governor, is um, reaching capacity. They think by the end of the week there's going to be um, something like 7,500 families um, who have been housed by the Executive Office of um, Housing and Livable Communities uh, because uh, there, there's a lot of migrant families and asylum seekers who are being sent to Massachusetts. And this is, and the program has like double, has served maybe like double what they anticipated this year. Um, so the governor tried to. Um, pass an emergency order to um, set a cap on the number of families who can be served under this emergency um, housing service and implement a wait list beginning today that would um, force them to prioritize um, the most 
in need people. So this is, uh, is this entertaining a supplemental budget um, allotment in order to fund, or they really want to put a cap on the number of families that could avail themselves of this emergency necessary shelter? Um, say that question again. Uh, the question yeah. is whether or not they're looking for more money in form of a supplemental budget allotment. That is one of the solutions. Um, the The office has requested um, additional funding from the legislature, and they haven't moved on that yet. Um, but according to the hearing that happened yesterday, they need that supplemental money just to serve the amount of people in the program already. So they're arguing that they're going to run out of money even if they get this extra funding. So they're going to need a lot more if we're going to serve the number of families who are um, the, the growing number of families that are in need of housing in Massachusetts. So I know in Greenfield we have, I don't know how many uh, uh, living in, in an emergency shelter in the in a motel up there. We have it in Holyoke. We have it in Springfield. It's mm -hmm. pretty prevalent that we have these families getting shelter pursuant to that uh, that grant, yeah. right? Sarah, isn't this crisis precipitated by uh, southern states essentially sending uh, migrants to Massachusetts? Isn't that what this is about, or am I wrong about that? Um, they are being sent here. I'm not exactly sure who is sending them, but we saw um, several months ago when uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, sent a bunch of people to Martha's Vineyard to almost prove a point, um, that still is happening, and it really is overwhelming Massachusetts shelter services. Um. Sarah Robertson, I, uh, it's really an important story. It's, you know, we, we, we look at all these humanitarian crises, but a lot of them are right here in our backyard. And there are people, families, children. Yes, uh, almost half of which are children that are being served through this program. It's it's a lot. I actually got the chance to speak with someone from ServiceNet yesterday, and they typically they are serving um, 16 families through their um, Greenfield shelter that provides emergency services. But with the additional um, state contracts through the, the days in where um, they're housing um, the additional people, they're serving over 60 families. So right. the the scale of this is, is really growing. And um, ServiceNet, they, they say that they can provide housing for more people, but it's just going to take state contracts to do it. And so if that money runs out, then they won't be able to continue providing these services or expand these services. Right now, they want to set this cap because they have enough money to provide services to the people in the program already right now. And this hearing happened the day before snow flies, that right now we have this wintry mix and and people are vulnerable to the weather in a way that they haven't been for five months, six months, right? Yeah, it's hitting at a really critical time. Like, I, there are um, social service agencies who are saying that people should be buying tents. It's going to be serious. And, again, there's a lot of families coming here who just, like, do not have a place to stay. These are people who are fleeing violence in their home countries. These are people who do not have a safe place to go back to, and they have families, or they have children, and these are pregnant women. Um, and Massachusetts was thought to be a safe place for them to go, um, and our agencies are being overwhelmed. And it's, it's if, if the legislature passes this supplemental budget, they will be able to um, fund this. They will be able to provide housing through the end of this fiscal year, and then what happens next year is anybody's guess. 
In your reporting, Sarah Robertson, is most of our delegation in favor of supplemental budget? I haven't heard back from the representatives that I did reach out to yesterday, but I bet they are. <laughs> it would be consistent with what we know yeah. about them. That's great. We are uh, going to take a break. Um, there's still plenty to talk about. We'll be right mm -hmm. back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. Where is your pain? In your knees, hips, your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. From Thursday, tomorrow, November 2nd through Saturday, November 1st, November 4th, the Perry Conference Advancing Well-Being and Power Among Low-Wage Workers, U.S. and Global Opportunities. We have with us Robert Poland, who is a professor of economics at UMass Amherst and the founder and director of Perry the Political Economy Research Institute. Thank you so much for being back with us, Professor. We really appreciate it. We want to hear about this conference, Advancing the Well-Being and Power Among Low-Wage Workers. For those of our listeners who say, what, what, what did Newman just say? Perry, what? P-E-R-I, Political Economy Research Institute. At the risk of asking a question that may seem self-evident, what do you mean by political economy? Uh, oh, uh, sure, Bill. Nice to be back on. I'll just say I'm not the director and founder. I'm the 
co-director and co-founder, along with Jerry Epstein. Oh, I, I apologize, and I particularly apologize to Jerry, who I know. <laughs> so thank you for that. Anyway, yes. uh, political economy is, is basically you know, a way to combine an understanding of all the economic issues that we face, uh, integrating that with a political perspective. So there's no such thing, really, as a purely economic question, if we're talking about anything to do with public policy or international policy or labor policy, because we have to understand both the economic ramifications of a, anything, like improving conditions for low-wage workers, and then we have to figure out the politics of getting from here to there. Perry has been at UMass for how long? 25 years. And on this 25th anniversary, there is a conference beginning November 2nd, uh, tomorrow, and going through this weekend. Tell us what the conference is about, please, and who are some of the stars who will be there? <laughs> well, the, the idea for the conference is to really focus on various initiatives, ideas, work, proposals, to really focus on low-wage workers, both in the U.S. and globally, um, so the people that, you know, the, the idea really started with the, the Coalition for Immokalee uh, Workers in Florida, who is, that is an extremely innovative organization that has been working with farm workers uh, starting in, in Florida. And the idea, first of all, is that the, it is an organization that is really um, led by the workers themselves, organized themselves, and not just around wages, which, of course, it is around wages, but it is also around uh, very focused on working conditions, um, including uh, the issues around uh, mistreatment of women in the agricultural fields um, and the um, uh, workers getting their wage th wages withheld, wage theft, so, you know, you can, it's great to have a contract, but what if you're not getting paid next week? So this coalition also has the, the big thing for which they're best known is that they managed to get uh, deals with a lot of big companies, fast food companies, uh, a penny a pound, it's called, for tomatoes. So uh, increase the, the price of tomatoes at, for example, McDonald's, um, that uh, in exchange, the, the penny uh, extra that would be paid would go directly to the workers. And so the coalition created a, an infrastructure to monitor this, and it's actually happening. And so it has uh, enabled uh, workers in uh, the, the uh, agricultural industry, the farm workers, to get raises as a result. So, Robert Poland, tell us this. There's going to be a conference from Thursday to Saturday advancing well-being and power among low-wage workers. As I understand it, you can attend either online or in person. I'd like to know what it is that you think people who come to this conference, and we don't have to, you don't have to be an economist, you don't have to be a political person, you can be someone who wants to be an ally and find out what you can do, although obviously policy uh, people are, would get a lot out of this. What do you hope the take-home lesson to be from this conference? Take-home lesson is to see and to hear and to get connected with people that are doing this work 
low-wage workers themselves who will be speaking, including our plenary speaker tomorrow evening, talking about star star uh, featured speakers. Our plenary speaker is herself a farm worker in in Florida. Uh, to get connected with them, hear what they're doing, um, and if one wants to get engaged, to get engaged. So we do have we do have researchers, we do have lawyers like yourself uh, working. Uh, that are coming uh, to speak, and then we have organizers, and then we have workers themselves. So in that sense, I think it's a unique, uh, really, confluence of people coming together to advance exactly well-being for workers, and we have people coming as far away from India. Again, this can be attended online or in person. How do yes. people sign up if they want to say, I want to hear this? How do I do it? Uh, well, it, all you have to do, type in... Uh, Perry Political Economy Research Institute on Google, and it'll get you to our homepage, and that will show you where you sign up. I was very excited to see that one of your speakers will be Claudia Cantero, who's from the Migrant and Seasonal Farmworker Project of Central West Justice. Uh, I just heard Claudia testify this past week at a hearing about farmworker justice. Uh, she's a spectacularly talented and wonderful lawyer. Uh, how did you how did you how did you happen to entice her to being as one of your presenters? <laughs> she was eager to do it once she heard about the project. I I don't know Claudia at all, so I'm really looking forward to meeting her tomorrow. Uh, I don't know her. We have you know a lot of great people coming, um, including uh, people from the U.S. Labor Department. The um, Biden administration has been actually an active. Uh, work along with the, this particular coalition of Immokalee workers. So uh, we are really trying to advance policy as well as uh, strengthen all organizing efforts, including those, that by Claudia in, in this region. And should note, there are other local people. There are people coming from literally around the world, also local people, including uh, Claudia Rosales from the Pioneer Valley Workers Center. So you do have some focus on yeah. Western oh, Massachusetts as well. Okay, what will this be? Q and A's? Will this be discussion groups? Will this be presentations? Tell us more about the conference itself. So uh, you know, we have I would say about eighteen speakers and six different sessions, I believe. Um, so the speakers will speak for you know about twenty minutes each, but then with each of the sessions, uh, we'll have plenty of time for Q and A uh, online as well as in person. And then we will have one wrap-up session Saturday afternoon, uh, which we can kind of go over anything that we think has been accomplished and how we can move forward and keep together the kind of this very, very broad set of people acting locally, acting nationally, acting internationally, acting as organizers, acting, you know, in, in government and researchers, academics, legal people, all all included, including speaking of another person, um, one of the lead one of the founders of the coalition, who also then led the Fair Food campaign, is uh, Judge uh, Laura Safer Espinoza, who was uh, a longtime member of the New York State Supreme Court. But she uh, stepped down from that position and has dedicated herself to organizing low wage workers in Florida. 
approaches to organizing, policy setting, and action-focused research, defending and expanding workers' rights, organizing on the job, international perspectives on organizing workers' perspectives on fighting inequality, advances and challenges in organizing campaigns. Wow, what what a lineup of uh, speakers and topics. How long have you been working on this? Uh, I'd say six months. And do you have some sense of how many people will be coming to the conference? I think we've got, in terms of registration, both in person and online so far, I'd say about 125. Wow. And hopefully we'll get more, including some of your listeners, Bill, including you maybe if you have time. Well, I would love to. Tell us one more time. If we just go to Perry, P-E-R-I, will that yeah. be enough to get us to the... Uh, yeah. yeah, you'll see it right on the homepage, and that, that'll tell you how to sign up. Even I can do it. <laughs> well, I, I, I just... Absolute incompetent, yeah. Well, Bob, uh, this is Buzz, and this morning I, I went to just do P-E-R-I, and I got a structural engineering firm, so... I then put in political economy after PERI, and I got it. Good, good. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Robert Poland, who is the co-director and co-founder of Perry Political Economy Research Institute at UMass Amherst. The conference is this weekend, beginning tomorrow through Saturday. Go to the website, sign up. You'll be glad you did yourself that favor. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11.